2019, the couple sold a total of 21 million puzzles globally and recorded an average rate of seven puzzles a minute sold in North America alone. Factoring in the recent search, the company is now averaging closer to 20 puzzles sold per minute in North America for 2020. 20 puzzles a minute. Well, they say that confession is good for the soul. And so if any point during the pandemic, if you have been a puzzle hoarder, would you just signify your sin, raise that up here and confess that in the body of Christ, right? Some of you are probably the same people who bought up all the toilet paper. Amen? What's wrong with you? But here's the reality. Uh, Even for those who may not be puzzle hoarders, lots of people, and I, I didn't realize this, I'm not a puzzle person, lots of people said I didn't become a puzzle hoarder, but I do in fact enjoy puzzles as a hobby. So how many of you would give testimony? You enjoy doing puzzles? Yeah, there's a handful of you in here. The rest of you are looking at like, what's wrong with them, right? And so uh, I am not a puzzle person, and the reason that I'm not a puzzle person is the same reason I don't play golf. It's too hard, and I have no patience. And so I stay away from golf courses, and I stay away from puzzles. Uh, but here's the reality. As, uh, what I've learned is this, that when you uh, are trying to put together puzzles, the most helpful thing is the picture on the front of the box. It's kind of the roadmap that when you get done, if you do it right, this is what it should look like. Now, as a person who gets uh, frustrated thinking about puzzles, in light of that, uh, let me just give you some counsel this morning as your pastor, all right? Once the box is lost, if you ever lose the box, there's a tendency to take those pieces and put them in a Ziploc baggie, right? Don't do that. Once the picture is lost, set those pieces aflame, amen? Don't even, listen. if you try to put together a puzzle without a picture, that is what therapists refer to as self-harm. And so, uh, you need the bigger picture of the puzzle to see how all these little pieces actually make sense. And so that's kind of an illustration of what we're doing over the next several months in this series that we've launched called The Story. And so every week we gather for church and, and every week we open up our Bibles to a passage of Scripture and explain it and talk about what does it mean and what does it look like to live out of that truth. And in essence, what we're doing is this. We're holding up a piece of the puzzle Saying, hey, in God's big picture story of how he's redeeming the world to himself throughout all of redemptive history, here is a piece of the puzzle, if you will. And so sometimes we lose sight of the big picture. And that's understandable. 66 books in the Bible, 1,089 chapters in the Bible, over 775,000 words contained uh, in the scriptures. And so uh, how does it all fit together? How are all these stories connected? How do we make the argument that really is one continuous story? And so that's what we begin this series in called The Story. And so last week we uh, discovered that Adam and Eve, they sinned. And that, that had a ripple effect, and so God and, and very immediately put together and, and began to develop his plan of redeeming the world to himself. And so God's going to continue that plan of redemption by gathering a people for himself as we look at the fact that God builds a nation. So if you have your Bibles, your phones, your tablets, whatever you're using this morning, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12 as a starting point this morning. If you were with us last week, we laid some important groundwork for this entire series, and here's what we learned that there is an upper story of Scripture. And the upper story is the big picture, sovereign plan that God is working according to his counsel, according to his will, to redeem the world back to himself. It's all the things that are unalterable. It's the things that you and I cannot change what God is doing in the big picture upper story. But also, along the way, while God's working his upper story according to his will, 
Along the way, simultaneously, there's the lower story being played out. And the lower story is our lives. In the lower story, we have the ability to make real choices with real consequences, both good and bad. But whatever choices we make, it will not alter God's upper story that he's unfolding. But the choices that we make will determine whether or not we align our lives and participate in the upper story that God is unfolding. And so last week, we looked at the story of creation, fall, redemption, the garden. We learned that Adam and Eve's sin had an incredible impact on all of humanity to the point where God said, you know what, let's just rewind the tape and start this thing over with. So God sends a flood and, and repopulates the earth through Noah, but even Noah, right out of the gate, sins, gets drunk, gets, uh, we learned in the Greek word last week, naked in his tent, remember that, right? And so from the very beginning, uh, sin began to reign throughout all of the earth, and so eventually, once the human race is restarted, God begins to build a nation for himself. And so we talk about this idea of God gathering a people or building a nation for himself to be his dwelling place. You cannot help but think of one name in the story of God's people, and that is the name Abraham. And so, Genesis chapter 12, uh, let's look at verses 1 through 7 this morning as a starting point as we continue to unfold this story. Genesis chapter 12. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, so at this point in time, God had yet to change his name to Abraham, which meant a father of multitude. And so it's the same person, all right? He says, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. And so Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And then Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree to Amorah. And the Canaanites were then in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So let me just give you a little uh, historical background to kind of connect the dots in this unfolding story. In between Noah, uh, there in Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 9, to Abraham here in Genesis chapter 12, uh, about a thousand years have passed during this time. And God is continuing to unfold his story. And so God makes this incredible promise to Abraham. He says, hey, good news, through you, I'm going to build a nation for my own glory, a dwelling place, a people through you. And here's the deal, I'm even giving you some land where you can kind of set up camp and begin to actually physically develop this nation. Now, it sounds like a, a sure thing, right? I mean, God has decreed it so clearly it's going to come to pass. And so now that part is true. That God in his upper story, when he decrees something as a part of his unfolding story of redemption, it is going to pass. It is in his sovereign hands. But here's the reality. While God is doing that, that does not negate the challenges that people have in the lower story of their lives to align themselves and participate with God's upper story. And here's what sometimes we read the Bible we think, yeah, I hear that and that's true for me. Like I struggle to discern what God is doing in the world around me and what does it look like to play my part. But the people in the Bible, the reason they're in the Bible is because it came easy for them, right? 
And if you're here and you're thinking that, here's what I'm, what I'm uh, hearing is that you've not read the Bible a whole lot because when you read the scriptures, what you find out is there are ordinary people and Abraham is no different. He and his wife, uh, Sarah, let me just put it mildly. They're not exactly the perfect candidates for the assignment that God has at this point in his upper story. Let me tell you why that is. For one thing, Abraham uh, came from a family of, of idol worshipers. Uh, Joshua chapter 24 tells us that Abraham's father, a guy named Terah, was an idol worshiper. And not even that, it actually indicates that his father Terah was an idol maker. And so here it was, his father was a guy actively in business and God was his primary uh, competitor. Not exactly the person you look at and you go, hey, that guy's kid, perfect, right? But that's what God does. And so God begins to call out Abraham and Sarah. That's the family that he's from. And so it's an unusual choice to say the least that it would come from this family tree, from a family of idol makers. God would look at them and say, that's the guy that I'm going to use to build a nation. Now, if that were the only part of his story, it's an important part to overcome. But here's the reality. Even more unlikely is that Abraham and Sarah are an elderly couple who to this point had never had children. And so you understand the significance of what God is doing here? I'm going to build a nation that through this nation, the, the line of the Messiah is going to come, and this nation will become my people, and there'll be a dwelling place among them for me. And I'm taking this guy who comes from a family of idol makers, and uh, through he and his wife, I'm going to inc- incredibly bless their descendants. And oh, by the way, they're elderly, and they've yet to have children at this point. I mean, can you imagine the conversation going on in heaven? Like God is conversing with the angels. The angels think, oh, this is so good, you know, uh, the fall of man, and and we're going to build a nation, and we're going to start over with one couple. Isn't this exciting? You can imagine all the angels looking at, surveying all of you and go, hey, what about that young couple right there playing tennis? They look fit and fertile. Amen, right? Surely they're great candidates. And God looks out and says, no, those two right there, they're like, you mean the ones with the walkers? Yeah, those people, right? That's the perfect candidate for this. And so here's the first principle I want you to see, and this is played out over and over and over again in the Bible, and it will play out in the lower story of your life. If you allow it to, the first principle is simply this, is that God uses the least likely people. Aren't you thankful for that? That God doesn't look at the all-stars and the heroes and all the people who are naturally gifted. God doesn't look at all the beautiful people and say, hey, uh, you would be the perfect. God, over and over and all throughout Scripture, uses the least likely people. And so if you're here and maybe you feel too insignificant, maybe you feel like your story's had too many uh, difficult places in the journey, listen, just read the Bible And over and over what you'll find is that God uses people, the rest of society is often pushed out to the margins. God uses the least likely people to accomplish his will. Listen to this laundry list of underachievers and inadequate candidates from the Bible. Abraham was old. If you think 75 is old, would you just say amen? Like, nope, not doing it right. (laughs) Isaac was incredibly insecure. Joseph was a slave. Moses stuttered. Gideon was fearful. Samson was proud. Rahab was immoral. David had an affair. Elijah was suicidal. Jeremiah was depressed. Jonah was disobedient. Naomi was a widow. Mary was a poor teenage girl. John the Baptist was eccentric, to say the least. 
Peter was impulsive. Mary worried a lot. The Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. Thomas had doubts. Paul was in poor health. Timothy was timid. The list goes on and on. And Brad sweats a lot. I mean, like just over and over. God is using the most unlikely of people as a part of his plan. There's no question about that. Here's the question, though. Why? Why? Why does God use this long list of imperfect and inadequate people, people with checkered pasts and and shady dealings and sinful shortcomings? Because here's why. Because at the end of the day, when God uses those kinds of people and God begins to unfold and do his work and call people to himself and bring healing to people, at the end of the day, the only person who gets glory in that scenario is God himself. And that's the whole purpose of the upper story is to reveal and display the glory of God for all of humanity. That's why. That's exactly why that happens. And so for everyone here who says, I'm, I'm, I'm too insignificant, I have too few gifts to offer, I've got too broken and shameful of a past to be qualified to, for my lower story to somehow fit into God's upper story and be a part of displaying his glory. It's too late for me. I'm too old, I've made too many mistakes, I've had too many chances, I've blown them. For everyone who says, I don't have resources or gifts to be a part of that, listen, look at Abraham and Sarah's life from the very beginning, and what you realize is this, in actuality, you're the perfect person to display the glory of God. That's what we learn from this. And so if you're listening, say amen. Whatever inadequacies you have in your life, and I don't have to give examples because we all keep a running list of those things, don't we, in our mental Rolodex. Every time you start to dwell on inadequacy as to far as why you can't be used in the little lower story of your life, cannot somehow be used and, and partner with and participate in the grand upper story of God revealing his glory, that somehow I cannot do that. Here's what you need to understand. Renew your mind around this truth, that your inadequacy is in fact an opportunity for God's glory. Let me repeat that. It was a good place for an amen and you missed it. Your inadequacy is in fact an opportunity for God's glory. It's an opportunity for someone to look at your lives and say, I knew them when. I remember when. And only God could have taken that life that lacked gifts, that's failed too many times to count, that, is not, that has no charisma. Only God could have worked through a life like that to do what, what he's used them to do. And in that scenario, God gets all of the glory for that. So God looks at Abraham and Sarah and says, hey, I know you've never had kids. I know you're up in years. I know there's probably on paper the, some candidates that make more sense for this part of the plan, but I want to use you to display my glory, and hear me this morning, God wants to do the same in your life if you'll let him. And so there's something else that's required though to participate in a line of the glorious story of our lives with God's upper story. And you, you hear that and you think, hey, that's incredibly encouraging. If God in his sovereignty would somehow choose to use me in the lower story of my little insignificant life in the grand big picture upper story, that's encouraging. So if God did that, I'm totally available. Well. Here's the second thing I want you to see is this, is it requires something on your part, because what we learn is this, is that God chooses to respond to believing faith. Now the fact that a sovereign God 
chooses to allow human faith to be a part of the equation is beyond my comprehension. But when we study scripture, that's exactly what we see. That if you and I want to align the lower story of our lives and participate and be used of God in the upper story that he's unfolding, then guess what? It's going to require a measure of faith on my life and in your life as well. Now let me pause and define what biblical faith is. Because most of the time when we think of faith, actually what we're thinking of is not biblical faith, it's wishful thinking. Let me give you a description. Maybe some of you have prayed this prayer. Lord, I didn't study a bit for this test. But I'm asking and believing that you would give me an A. Can I get an amen this way? Has anybody ever prayed that prayer, right? Listen, that's not biblical faith, that's wishful thinking. That's why you got an F. I just wanna share that openly, all right? It's an encouragement this morning. Here's what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is choosing to move forward in obedience to written revelation when we cannot imagine how it's going to work out for our good or God's glory. Let me repeat that. It's choosing to move forward in obedience to written revelation when we cannot imagine how it's going to work out for our good and God's glory. In other words, it's seeing something in the Bible where where Jesus said, hey, turn the other cheek. You all right down there? Just dropped your Bible like that startled you, didn't it? Someone over here just dropped their beer in church. Did you guys hear that? How terrible is that? You should be ashamed of yourself. And you're thinking, I don't know why I said that. You're thinking, if I do that, then they're going to take advantage of me. If I do that, then everyone around me is going to think I'm weak. If I do that, I'm going to eat all these bad stuff. But this is what God has called me to do, and so I'm going to respond in faith when I have no idea how it's going to work out for my good and my glory, because that's what the scripture has called me to do. That's biblical faith. And so in Genesis chapter 12, uh, God shows us what faith is like through uh, the life of Abraham. So if you look at Abraham's story, guess what? It is a life of faith. It is a life of God calling him and inviting him to difficult uh, opportunities and him having to wrestle and choose. Am I going to believe God and the revelation he's given me or am I going to do what makes sense to me? Go back to chapter 12 and look at this again. Chapter 12, verse one. Go back to verse one. Here's what he says. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and your father's house and listen to this, to a land that I'll show you. Abraham, I want you to pack up everything you have, sell it all, and get on your camel and just take off. Where are we going? I'll let you know when you get there, right? That sounds like some of your family vacations, whether it's intentional or not. And at this point in the stage, remember they're 75 years old. Listen, at this point they should be living off of social security and God signs them up for a life of insecurity. At this point, most of their friends are uh, traveling to Florida for the winter. You get it? Here's a little sub point that I first learned many years ago in a a Bible study I went through called Experiencing God. How many of you have ever went through Experiencing God at some point in your Christian life? Yeah, several of you have. And so Henry Blackaby in that study uh, has this great point. Here's what he says. He said, God's invitation to join him will always lead you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. That's what we see on display here. God in Genesis 12, verse 1, is inviting Abraham, hey, in a part of my big upper story, here's what I'm doing. I'm I'm building a nation for my dwelling place, for me to live in covenant relationship with him. And I'm inviting you, Abraham, to be a part of this. 
And oh, if you would just join in with me, verses two and three, he says, here's all the incredible things I'm going to do through your life. But Abraham would have came to that point and thought, you kidding me? I'm 75. You want me to pack up everything and just take off and I don't even know where I'm going? And you're gonna bless through my descendant? God, I don't know if you're aware. We've never, we, we don't have any children. Right, and look, like we're not exactly in our most fertile years here. And what would have happened there? It would have led Abraham to a crisis of belief to align his lower story of his life with God's upper story in faith and action. So go down to verse four. What do we read? Verse four says, so Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Now here's what I want you to understand. Listen, God in his unfolding story, if Abraham would have said, hey, I appreciate the invitation, find someone else. Like I've got a nephew, he's younger than me, like he, he would be great at this. He lives a life of, of adventure. God would have still accomplished what God sovereignly wanted to accomplish, gathering a, a people, but Abraham at that point said, wow, God's unfolding his upper story, and I've got a choice with my life. Am I going to align the lower story of my life and participate in what God is going to do with or without me, and if I choose not to, then guess what? God's gonna do it, but I'm gonna miss out on the blessings of obedience. I believe this with all my heart this morning. I believe that there are people in this very room and in living rooms and people are watching online. I believe there are people who have been invited at some point in their lives in very direct and specific ways to participate in the upper story of what God is doing, and, but they've yet to experience the blessing of doing that because instead of responding with faith and action like Abraham did in verse four, they've responded uh, with uh, rational reasons and excuses as to why in fact that could not happen or this is not a great time, God. If you just come back a little later, like when I've got some affairs settled, when I'm a little further down the road financially, when I'm kind of at the tail end of my career and got some free time, if you just let me get my kids off the ground, if you'd just let me kind of wrap up this season of taking care of my aging parents, if you just, if you just wait, I'm kind of in a career transition. God, there's a pandemic going on. This is not a good time, Lord, but I'm available. And I believe this, there are people who have rationalized and excused away the reasons they can't participate in the upper story of God's life because in their perspective, it didn't make sense. Guess what? In Genesis chapter 12, it didn't either in Abraham's life. Let me ask you a question. What was rational about Abraham's response in verse 4? The invitation goes out, verse 1, the the blessings of participating go on verse two and three, but when you read verse four, there's nothing on paper that makes sense about history. What's rational about when the Bible records and Abraham went? Here's, what's, here's the answer. Disobedience for a person who claims to love and trust God is irrational. Let me tell you what's irrational. To think you can trust God with all of your eternity, but you can't trust him in the midst of the life you're living on this side of eternity. That's irrational. Now, I don't raise this point very often because I think it can create an unbiblical distinction between sacred and secular work, but I want to raise it uh, this morning. And I believe in this very church 
I believe in every campus this morning. I believe in every living room for those who are watching online. I believe there are people who have been called of God into full-time vocational ministry and, and missions. And, and for, for what God has clearly at some season in life said, hey, I could use you in this way. And your service is not any more significant than someone who's working at some other place. But I would love to use your life in this way. They said, Lord, I'm, I've not been to seminary. I've got this background that, if, that I try to keep in the closet. If it ever came out, man, there's no way you could use my life. And they've rationalized all the reasons why they could not do that. Let me tell you what's irrational. is to trust God with your eternity and not surrender your life on this side of it. I believe there are people sitting out here this morning and watching online that God wants to use in full-time ministry. And at some point, God has called you into that and you've rationalized the way why it won't make sense in your life. Well, every time you do that, go back to verse 4 in Genesis chapter 12, and the Bible says, and Abraham went, and it did not make sense. You know what doesn't make sense? To disobey a God who loves you and wants to use you in his upper story. Hebrews chapter 11, the great chapter of faith, the Hebrew writer points to the story of Abraham and here's what the Hebrew writer says in verse 4 in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham was called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, and he obeyed, even though he did not know where he's going. And I think that if you and I are going to allow our lower story of our lives to be used in the grand upper story of God, you've got to live with this certain understanding. And here it is this morning. God has the right to interrupt your life and your plans at any time he sovereignly chooses. And it may not make sense. And God's going to do what he's going to do, whether we participate or not. God is sovereign. His unfolding story is unalterable. But here's the reality. Guess what? You're going to miss out on the adventure of living a life of faith and watching God provide when it doesn't make sense in your life. And so let me ask you a question this morning. And I asked myself this. I didn't love the answer. What excites you more? Living a life of faith or living a life of control? Some of you have got three-year plans and five-year plans and 10-year plans and 25-year plans. and You've got your whole life mapped out and there's comfort in that and there's security in that. Here's where we're going and here's where we're retiring and here's the age I'll be and here's what my kids are going to do and here's the kind of person they're going to. Listen, that's a life of control and you can do that. And God will still be working his sovereign story in the upper story all the while you're trying to control. But you'll miss out on what it looks like to be involved in what God is doing and so what excites you more? Be honest this morning in your own heart. What excites you more, living a life of faith or living a life of control where everything's safe and everything's planned out and everything's working out according to your plan? And I'm not talking about, like some of you hear that and you're like, well, you're advocating for reckless, irresponsible living. Listen, I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about living a life where God, through his written revelation, through prayer, through fasting, through the counsel, counsel of godly, spiritually mature people, God confirms his work and his call in your life, and you respond with faith and action, even when it does not line up with your 10-year plan. What's more exciting to you? Several years ago, I was listening to a youth leader talk to parents about the importance of living a life of faith. And if you've ever had children, you 
let's just be honest, a life of control seems more appealing than a life of faith, living with kids. Can I get an amen? Right? Like faith sounds scary. It is. Control sounds easier. It is. But here's what he said. I will never forget this as long as I live. Here's what he said. He said, parents, one of the reasons that your kids go off chasing sin is because it's advertising a better, more exciting, exciting story than the safe, boring, faithless Christian life you're modeling for your kids. He's saying, hey, if you want your kids to be excited about following the Lord, every now and then there should be some adventure in your Christian life. Every now and then you should sit down and say, hey, kids, I know this doesn't make sense, but, but we're going to build a bridge with that neighbor who's over there making uh, meth in his garage. Like, that doesn't make sense, right? We're going to build a bridge with them. Hey, these people who, who don't like us or, or who's left out, that if we associate with them, somehow that's going to tarnish our reputation. We're building a bridge with them. Hey, this extra stimulus money that we got. This doesn't make sense, but God's prompted my heart to set that aside for a mission trip. God's prompted my heart that we would bless someone else so we're not gonna get in. I know that doesn't make sense, but sometimes, kids, guess what? Following the Lord doesn't always make sense, but it's so exciting to think that our lower story would align with his upper story and we're living our lives by faith. Or are you in control of all of that and you just happen to go to church on Sundays? And so Abraham went, and everything around him was screaming, stay, don't do, that doesn't make any sense. You're too old. You don't have kids. And so the reality is simply this. We often feel the same way, that we learn about God's story, but nothing changes in our story. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord. Romans chapter 4, Paul says, against all hope. Did you hear that? Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Flip over a couple chapters to Genesis chapter 16. The story continues to unfold. Genesis chapter 16, here's what happens. Abraham and Sarah believe God. They say, okay, God, this doesn't make sense, but you've decreed it and so we're going to go. Right? Verse 4. But along the way, what they, what they d- discern is that God, while he's unfolding with his upper story, God's moving too slow. Have you ever felt that way? God, I trust you, but you're running behind schedule a little bit. And so what we do when we become convinced of that or afraid of that, more, more honestly, is that we take matters in our own hands and say, Lord, I'm just going to help you along. And so Genesis chapter 16, look at verses 1 and 2. Abraham and Sarah decide to help the Lord along because his plan to bless them and their descendants into a great nation, it's moving too slow. So Genesis chapter 16 verse 1 says this. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. And so Sarah said to Abram, see now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham heeded the voice of Sarah. That was not that uncommon in their culture. And so they begin to take matters into their own hands. And so uh, Hagar, her servant, gets pregnant. And then, uh, shocker, Sarah begins to get bitter at Hagar because here she's got a a child for Abraham and Sarah can't bore bore any children on Abraham's behalf. And so who would have thunk it, right? 
You take matters into your own hands and it doesn't turn out well. And so here's the third thing I want you to see, which is this. Leads right into this. Third principle I want you to see is this. Is that faith is matured and proven in times of testing. You know what God wanted from Sarah's life? He didn't want her help. He didn't want to look around and go, hey, there's Hagar. She'll, you know, clearly God's messed up. Clearly God's running late. Clearly our, you know, our, our uh, clock is ticking here. So, so I'm going to take matters in my own hands and, and I'm going to give uh, Sarah to, or, uh, Hagar to Abraham. And so all the while what God was wanting to do, he didn't want her help. He wanted her to trust him. He says, hey, I made you this promise. And I know it's going slow and your clock is ticking. Like actually at that point, the batteries had gone out of her clock, right? But just trust me. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 22. We've got to move quick because up until now I've been talking really slow. Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. God continues to unfold his story through Abraham. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1 says this. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac. So eventually Sarah did have a child named Isaac. Whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him. There is a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What? Let's just be honest. You would have protested to God. That doesn't make sense. You promised to bless through my descendants this incredible nation. And here I am at this time, about almost 100 years old, right? And now the, the finally we have a child through which we can have descendants, and you want me to sacrifice him. Look at verse 3. Genesis 22, verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. And took two of his young men with him, and Isaac and his son. And he split the wood for a burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Now, if there's any hesitation, the Bible doesn't record it. I'm sure it was a sleepless night, but if there's any protest on Abraham's life, uh, the Bible doesn't record it. All it says the next morning, he got up and said, this doesn't make sense to me, but I'm going to respond in faith. And so he said, hey, listen, God's given us an assignment. It doesn't make sense, but we're moving ahead. And so in moments of testing, you'll have to choose. Listen to this. You will have to choose in moments of testing to trust the character of God when you cannot discern the activity of God. Let me repeat that. In moments of testing, you will have to choose to trust the character of God when you cannot discern the activity of God. Some people are getting convicted and walking out. That's my son, in case you're wondering. How did Abraham do that? Because Abraham had walked with the Lord so intimately in his life that he began over a long period of time to trust in the character of God. And so when it came to yet another point in his life when he could not discern or make sense of the activity of God, he had learned to trust the character of God, and so he obeyed. Later on, we see that Isaac grew up to marry Rebekah. They were married for 20 years before they had their first child, actually twins, Jacob and Esau. God starts to move a little quickly in building a nation for himself. Eventually, Jacob has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel, and God begins the nation, build a nation through them. 
You know what's even worse than trying to put together a puzzle without the pieces? It's putting together a puzzle at the end and missing one piece. Here's what I believe this morning. That God in the big picture of his unfolding upper story of redeeming the world to himself. That some of you are sitting on the sidelines and you're a missing piece of the puzzle. That God, God's going to do what God needs to do, but God wants to use your life. And your small little piece of the puzzle could be a touch point for someone else to see a tangible display of the glory of God through your life. And guess what? It may not make sense. And guess what? You've already got, in hearing that, you've got all kinds of reasons and rationalizations why, in fact, that can't be true. Or this is not the best time for that. But hear me this morning. There are sitting in all these seats, there are sitting in living rooms this morning, missing pieces of the puzzle. God has a calling on your life. And I don't know what that looks like. God has a calling on your life to display his glory. Hear me this morning. God is calling you. God is calling you. Not because you're able, but because he is able. Would you bow your head this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I want to ask you to do something very, very scary. Would you right now, maybe for the first time or maybe for the first time in a long time, would you right now pray and tell the Lord, my life is in your hands. Would you pray right now and tell the Lord, the life of my kids and my grandkids are in your hands. And would you say, God, whatever, whatever part of the puzzle you want my life to play, I'm available. Would you confess and repent of all the excuses and all the rationalizations you've made along the way? Would you just say, Lord, you're not calling me because I'm able. You're calling me because you're able. Would you right now pray and ask the Lord to strengthen you for all the people who are going to criticize you when you move forward in faith, all the people who are going to ridicule you? It doesn't make sense at this point in your life. You've not been educated for that. You don't have the skills to do that. You don't have the resources to do that. You don't have the gifting to do that. Right now, would you just pray and say, Lord, strengthen me. Father, I pray this morning that this would not be a normal Sunday. God, I pray this morning that in this room, at every campus, at every home watching online right now, that God, people would actually make some tangible decisions to move forward in faith. That some people would bring to mind things where they've held you off for years on why they can't do something, why they can't be in that ministry, why they can't be in that mission field, why they can't reach that person. God, I pray that today would be the day we, we surrender all of that, lay all that to the side and declare we're not able. But God, you call us because you are able. And God, through our inadequacies and inconsistencies, 
You want to display your glory. And so, Lord, I pray that every person, me included, would sign up for that today. And we know the people we love, other Christians, will tell us at times it's not wise or it's not God's timing. And so, Lord, strengthen us in the days ahead. Through your word, through prayer, through the counsel of godly Christians, confirm it in our hearts. But, Lord, help us to live surrendered lives. We are not our own. Lord, we are bought with a price. And so, God, use us in ways we can't even fathom. All for your glory. It's in the name of your son we pray because we can. Amen. Well, Cassidy's going to come and dismiss us in just a moment. And so she, as she comes, uh, one of the things we said, hey, when we're doing church at home, we love that you kind of those family discussion questions. And so every week before we dismiss, uh, we're going to throw out one family question, kind of the car ride question on the way home or the way to the restaurant. And so here's the family question I'm going to challenge you with this morning. What would it look like? What would it look like for your family to take a step of faith this week to be used of God? What would that look like for your family this week to take a step to be used by God? So you discuss that the way home and the car ride to the restaurant and see what God does this week through your life. All right, well, before we head out real quick, I do have a couple of reminders for us. Um, first, if you know that you need to respond in some way to the message this morning, or maybe you even just have some questions, um, that Connect card is not just for our guests. It's also the easiest way for you to communicate to us and just let us know if maybe you just want to have a conversation one-on-one -on -one with someone about what it looks like to start a relationship with Jesus. Or maybe you've done that, but you know you need to take the next step and follow that in baptism. Or maybe you're ready to step out of being anonymous here and step into community in one of our community groups. You can also share prayer requests with us. So any of those things, you can fill out that Connect card and just let us know, either the uh, paper one in your seat back or online at lhc.life forward slash connect. And then in addition to that, there are two specific ways that you can engage further with LHG this week. The first, um, hopefully some of you are already familiar with it now, but we have a resource website called lhg.life forward slash the story, and it'll just let you follow along with what we're covering on Sunday mornings. There's a reading plan, so if you've never read through the whole Bible, you can read through it along with Brad's teaching, which is great. There are also weekly devotionals you can read and other resources like um, some books you could order if you wanted to read along. So all of that is there on that site lhc.life forward slash the story. And then the last thing is that there will be another Wednesday morning prayer gathering. It's a virtual one at 6.30 this Wednesday. So since it's virtual, all you have to do is jump onto lhc.life forward slash prayer. And there will be a link there uh, at 6.30 you can click on to jump into that virtual prayer meeting. So with that, I will just remind us that the ushers are going to um, release us by rows. So if you can hang tight until they get to your section. And I just want to say thank you so much again for joining us this morning. Hope you have a blessed week and look forward to seeing you again next week.